good morning, Grace Church. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, Once again, we come to study God's Word together and to be nourished by it. Um, And I'm very excited uh, to have this opportunity to share with you this morning. My name is James Covington, and I think that I am one of the newest members of the teaching team here at Grace. I grew up in Fayetteville, but for the past five years, I've been living in Chicago with my wife and three small sons, where I'm a graduate student. But in the summer, we moved back here to Fayetteville while uh, I can work on my dissertation closer to family. This is my first time ever to preach on a Sunday morning, and so I'm a little bit nervous. I'm really excited, and in a strange way, I feel connected to Jesus, as we're going to see in this passage, because Jesus is about 30 years old, that's how old I am, and he returns to his hometown, kind of like me, and he preaches his first full sermon, at least the first sermon that Luke records for us in full. I just hope that at the end of this, you guys don't try to throw me off a cliff. <laughs> we'll see. For those of you that have read the book, The Brothers Karamazov, you might uh, recognize what I'm about to tell you. In this book, there are three brothers, and one of them is named Ivan. And Ivan is an intellectual, and he's also an atheist. But he writes a very interesting story that he reads to his brother, Alyosha. The story is about a time in which Jesus makes an unexpected appearance on earth. It takes place in Seville, Spain, during the Spanish Inquisition. And every day during this time, the cardinal is gathering up heretics and burning them at the stake uh, to God's glory, he says. And the people follow him in this. They are totally afraid of this cardinal. Well, in Ivan's story, Jesus appears in Seville one day, and the people recognize him immediately. They know exactly who he is, and they want to be close to him because they know the kindness that is exuding from him. And he heals a blind man in their midst, and he raises a dead girl back to life as she is being carried in her own funeral procession. But then the cardinal comes out, and he sees what Jesus has been doing, and he doesn't like it. He arrests Jesus, and he takes him to where he later berates him, and then has him executed. Why? Because he was interfering with the project of the church. Well, at this point in the story, as Ivan is telling the story to his brother Alyosha, Alyosha, who's a devout Orthodox monk, feels that he must interrupt. He says, I don't quite understand, Ivan. What does it mean? What what could this story possibly mean? Is it simply a wild fantasy or a mistake on the part of the old man? Some impossible qui pro quo, that is, Has the cardinal simply mistaken someone for someone else? How can he not know who Jesus is? Take it as the last, replies Ivan with a laugh. Although the fictional author of this story explains the troubling response to Jesus' sudden appearance as a case of mistaken identity, the irony is that both the townspeople and the cardinal know precisely who Jesus is. Or do they? Now, last week, when we were with John the Baptist out in the desert shouting at people, literally shouting at people coming to him and shouting kind of mean things, the question of Jesus' identity was very important. John pointed forward to the Christ, 
one who would come who would be greater than him. And as Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth this week, his identity is equally important in the larger narrative of Luke Acts that we're studying. As we turn to this passage, we'll see that, but first I'd like us to pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to read your word together and to be nourished by it. I pray that you will open our ears and our eyes to see you more clearly and respond to you appropriately. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're following along in your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 14, where our passage begins, or you can follow up here. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I think that to understand this story, you have to get inside the minds of the Nazarenes who are there in Jesus' hometown as he gets up to preach. They know something about him. Many of them saw him grow up, or they grew up with him. They are his own friends, or the friends of his parents, his cousins, his distant relatives. And they probably remember stories about him, like what happened with those shepherds when he was born, or they remember that that time that he stayed behind in Jerusalem and was teaching uh, as a child. They also know what he's been doing most recently. They've probably heard that he was baptized by John and something happened. There was a voice, there was a sight, and he's just returned from being tempted in the wilderness 
uh, out there by himself. And he, when he returned, he has begun to teach. And his teaching is drawing a crowd, and people are very impressed with what Jesus is doing. In that synagogue, that Sabbath day, the people were eager to hear what Jesus would say. They were probably whispering to each other, we're so excited, what is Jesus going to say to us today? And when Jesus picks up the Isaiah scroll and begins to read from it, he says, good news to the poor. And that whispering stops. He says, liberty to the captives. And you can just feel and see the people leaning in to hear what he's going to say next. When he says sight to the blind, a mother on this side of the synagogue holding her infant in her arms, an infant who cannot see, she sheds a tear thinking of the fact that her child will never be able to see the light of day. When he says liberty for the oppressed, a farmer over on this side swells with pride in his chest as he thinks about the possibility of owning his own land again. Those fields that the Romans burned just the previous season because they suspected him of being an insurrectionist. When Jesus says the year of the Lord's favor, there's dead silent in the synagogue, and he sits down, and they're, they're just wondering, this, the air is electric, what is going to happen next? And Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled. And from the back you hear, amen, and the side you hear, it's about time. You see, the people were so excited to hear Jesus and, and the words that he was saying from Isaiah, because they were ready to hear him say what they wanted him to say. They had constructed Jesus and his message uh, according to themselves. And this isn't exactly what Jesus meant. You see, they heard good news to the poor, and they thought about wealth and the status, the status that goes along with wealth. When they heard liberty to the captives, they thought about political independence from the Romans. When they heard sight to the blind, they thought about health and the various problems that were plaguing their community. When they, thought, when they heard liberty for the oppressed, they thought about vindication and revenge. When they heard the year of the Lord's favor, they thought about a new and lasting era. That lasting era from King David's time that they wanted to come back. And when they heard the scripture is fulfilled, they heard now. Now things are going to change. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him, and because he's one of us, God's favor is also upon us. But this wasn't Jesus' intention. You see, when Jesus opened that Isaiah scroll, he decided where he was going to start reading and where he was going to stop reading. And where does he start? He starts with this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This text from Isaiah, it's about Jesus. And that's what he's trying to communicate to the synagogue. And where does he end his reading? With the year of the Lord's favor. The very next phrase in this text is, and a day of revenge. You see, Jesus stopped before that because his ministry, the work that he was going to do during his time on earth, was not going to be characterized by revenge. It was going to be characterized by peace. Peace between God and man. And these miracles and blessings that are in the Isaiah 61 text um, are not the ends and of them, ends, they're not ends in and of themselves. Jesus mentions these as they are proofs of who he is. They're proof that he is God's true prophet. And yet the people 
only wanted to hear what God could do for them. However, Jesus was proclaiming good news to the poor. More than any other evangelist, Luke emphasizes Jesus' care and concern for the poor. When we get to the Beatitudes in chapter 6, unlike Matthew, where you find blessed are the poor in spirit, Luke just has blessed are the poor. And we know that he means poor because what are they supposed to receive? They're supposed to be fed. The poor are those who don't have enough to eat in Luke. Similarly, Luke is the only evangelist who tells us the story about Zacchaeus. And if you grew up in church, I know you know who Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. But Luke doesn't introduce him as a wee little man. He does say that he was short, and that's why he has to climb up in the tree. Zacchaeus is introduced as a tax collector and a rich man. And why was he rich? Because as a tax collector, he could take as much money from people as he wanted, and he had gotten rich in this fashion. And when Zacchaeus has a change of heart, what does he do? He says, I'm going to take half of all my stuff and give it to whom? To the poor. This is Luke's Jesus. But Luke's concern for the poor doesn't, is not limited just to Luke. As you continue into Acts, what is the early church doing? They're selling their land and their goods. They're bringing their money to the church. And they're making sure that everyone among them has enough. Every, everyone has what they need. Jesus was proclaiming liberty to the captives. Back with John's baptism of repentance um, for release from sins already brings this idea onto the stage of Luke's gospel. But a few chapters later, when Jesus is asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray, what does Jesus say in his model prayer? Release us from our sins as we also release everyone indebted to us. Jesus would bring sight to the blind. I think of the blind man at Jericho. When Jesus is getting close to entering into Jerusalem, he passes by a blind man at the gate of Jericho, and the blind man hears Jesus coming, and he says, Lord, have pity on me. What do Jesus' followers they say? They say, be quiet. And the man says, Lord, have pity on me. And Jesus looks at that man, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine? Jesus stops what he's doing, and he asks this one man, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want to see again. What does Jesus say? See again. Jesus cares about this one man's blindness. But Jesus doesn't just bring blindness to the physically, doesn't just bring sight to the physically blind. He also brings spiritual sight to Paul in Acts. He actually blinds Paul to show that he really was blind even though that he could see. And later those scales fall off of Paul's eyes. And he sees an entire new world that he hadn't noticed before. Jesus would release the oppressed. I think of the Gerasene demoniac in chapter 8. This man had a legion of demons in him. And he was so oppressed by these demons that he couldn't even be constrained by shackles and chains. Perhaps even worse is I imagine the woman in chapter 13, who was bent over for 18 years. Can you imagine being bent over, not able to stand up for 18 years? Jesus doesn't even ask this woman what she wants. He just looks at her as soon as he sees her, and he says, you are released from your illness. Jesus did inaugurate a new era in which God's favor would be accessible to all without distinction. I think of Acts 
in which Peter has this vision as he's up on, the, uh, up on the roof of the house. He sees this sheet descending from the sky, and it's a sheet full of animals, both kosher and non-kosher. And he hears the Lord say to him, rise, kill, and eat. And later, when Peter follows Cornelius to his house, and he talks to Cornelius' friends and family, what does Peter say? Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. See, Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection bring us into a, a new era in which we can be acceptable to God. And yet the people in Nazareth that day didn't understand all of these things. And Jesus knows that they didn't understand. When they asked the question, is this not Joseph's son? They're thinking, Jesus is one of us. And because God's on his side, we're going to get a special deal with God. We're going to get special treatment because he's one of our own. Jesus did care about their individual problems, but he did not come just to fix their individual problems. The Nazarenes initially misunderstand Jesus and his message. And if we are to avoid falling into the same trap as them, the trap of constructing Jesus in our own image and according to our own desires, we must have a plan. And I think that Wayne Meeks, who wrote a book called Christ is the Question, helps us to construct this plan. This is what he writes. Jesus becomes a human person, as we all do, by interaction with the others around him. All those questions asked by other characters in the gospel stories, who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? Is this not Joseph's son? Where did this man get all this? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Who is this son of the human? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one who is coming, or should we expect another? Those questions, they're not clues in a game of 20 questions. The answer is not there all along to be guessed. The answer is in the making. And the evangelists have each written their different stories in such a way that we, the readers, must involve ourselves in the process. Or to rephrase Meeks' words, the answer is not there all along to be guessed about who Jesus is. The answer is in the reading if we are to understand who Jesus is, let's go to the next slide. If we were to have an image of Jesus, his face is kind of worn off here. It's hard to get a good image of him. And in this codex, it's kind of interesting because as you look through subsequent images, Jesus' face changes. There must have been different artists working in this, in this single codex. But I love the fact that Jesus doesn't have a stable face. He doesn't even really have much of a face in this picture. If we were to have a proper image of Jesus... The way that we do it is by reading. We have been called by others as Christians, the people of the book, and yet I can't think of a better name for us. We must love to learn reading, and we must learn to love reading our book, or rather our library. This is just a New Testament, but it's also a library. Um, and as you hear gospel imagination mentioned here, I would say that that gospel imagination is also a literary imagination. And yet, I think even as reading the Bible has been fundamental to who Protestants and who evangelicals are today and in the past, I think that there are some strange things about the way that we read the Bible. 
For example, when was the last time that you went to your mailbox, you got out a letter, and then you spent the next two weeks reading it one paragraph a day? Would you even remember what the first paragraph said on the 14th day of reading that letter? Or if you've read Harry Potter, did you read it one page a day? Or maybe, you know, it's pretty hard to read every day. Did you read one page every third day? Um, that's not the way we read novels. That's not the way we read letters. Or what about a poem? If I read a poem, a sonnet by John Milton, I have no idea what it means after I've read it one time. It's pretty hard to understand. I have to read it and reread it and reread it and sleep and then read it again. And then I go ask somebody what it means or look up, you know, on Wikipedia, what does this sonnet mean? And then I read it again. But we read the Psalms in this way. A psalm is, is an entire goldmine of wisdom and reflection upon who we are and who God is, and yet we think that we can just sort of imbibe it in 10 minutes. The Proverbs are even worse. I'm not sure whose idea it was. It's kind of clever. Read the Proverbs one chapter a day every month. Yeah, you can get through the book uh, in 31 days that way, but each verse of Proverbs is like a really cryptic puzzle that you have to wrestle with. So I would say that as we read the Bible, we have to read in genre-appropriate ways. You have to think about what kind of text am I reading? And maybe I should read this text in a way that actually matches the text. If you're reading a psalm, you should read it and reread it and reflect on it. If you're reading a gospel, maybe you would do better not to read the gospels every day or to read a book like Genesis every day. Maybe you would do better to sit down once a week or once a month and read the whole thing in one sitting. That's the way that we, we would read something of that length. Um, if you think about how long a chapter uh, of a novel is, it's, you know, a gospel is only like a few chapters long. And yet we've divided Luke into so many chapters. And that makes us think that we can, we can break it up into these, these bits. But it makes the text unintelligible. We must also read in light of our own bias. If these Nazarenes looked at Jesus and heard what he said and they just sort of saw themselves... If we think about who we are and ways in which we might misinterpret Jesus or other parts of Scripture, maybe we can preempt our own misunderstanding. We also have to read in context. This passage today takes place within a certain context. And there are various things that I think that you could see or highlight in this passage, but one I'd like to point to that, that works well with thinking about the context is how does John relate to Jesus. You see, the Nazarenes are not the only ones who don't understand completely who Jesus is. I don't think John the Baptist, in Luke at least, understands who Jesus is. See, he constructs Jesus in his own image too, in a way, because he tells those people who came out to see him, there's one greater than me who is coming. Jesus is defined in terms of what John the Baptist is like. And then what does he say? He says, he compares Jesus to a farmer who gathers together all of his good grain into a silo and then burns the rest. This is exactly how John would think of the Christ to come. And we know that John's conception of Jesus is not complete yet because as we turn to chapter 7, John has heard about what Jesus is doing. He's probably heard about Jesus preaching in Nazareth. He's heard of the miracles that, are, that he's beginning to perform. And he sends to Jesus and says, are you the Christ or should we expect another you're not the guy that I thought you were going to be. It's basically what John is saying. And what does Jesus say? He says, go tell John. The blind see, the lame walk, 
Lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. This sounds very similar to the Isaiah 61 text that Jesus preached from, which Jesus intended to be indicative of what his ministry would be like in the future. I think it's also helpful to read with a purpose. You might ask a question. Before you sit down to read a book like Acts, maybe you should write down a question and think about that question as you read through the whole thing. Or look for themes. Think about how the author develops characters. When you read dialogue, think about what the characters are thinking. Why do they say the things that they say? What's going on in their minds? Our passage today is is a very great example of that because people ask this cryptic question, is this not Joseph's son? And it's not readily apparent how to understand it or what they're thinking. I've tried to say that I, I think that they think Jesus is one of them, but they might be saying, are you... Are you really the guy that you're saying that you're going to be? Another thing to look for is repetition. Um, In this passage, at the very opening, as Jesus' preaching ministry has begun, it says that he was glorified by all. Now, this is a theme that runs all through Luke-Acts. Even when Jesus is born, what do the angels say? Glory to God in the highest. What do the shepherds do when they hear the message? They glorify God and praise him as they leave. And this continues as Jesus heals people and in Acts when his followers preach, people glorify God or they reject Jesus. As we engage in a healthy lifestyle of Bible reading, however, we must understand more fully who Jesus is and what he's doing, if we're doing it well. However, being people of the book, we must not be bookish. I don't think many, many people like to be thought of as bookish today, but we, we can't do that. We must join Jesus in his work, and here he outlines what his work is. When he says release, his ministry is characterized by release. Think of the relationships that you're in. Are you failing to forgive someone? Are you holding something against someone? When Jesus talks about the poor, think about the ministries that Grace Church is already involved in, such as Life Source or Seven Hills. Taking care of the poor means feeding and clothing them. What about the oppressed? Um, I just think of the announcement that was made about Canopy. Uh, What's more oppressive than not having a home for 10, 15, 20 years? However, taking care of the marginalized often doesn't even mean you have to leave your own home. If you're like me and you have three little kids, they don't have a voice. They're not powerful. They're very weak. And they can, be, they can be abused, and they can be manipulated, and they can be taken advantage of. Play with your kids. Love them. Listen to them. Try to see the world from their perspective and care about the things that they care about. And you will be fulfilling Jesus' work in an important way. And if you're not interested in Jesus' program and what he's doing, you have to think about the alternative, which brings us back to the Grand Inquisitor where we started. If Jesus were to make a surprise visit to Fayetteville, would we recognize him? If he came up here and stood in front of Grace Church and preached, would we understand the words that he said, or would we misunderstand them like his own friends and family? And if he outlined his kingdom work, would we want to join him, or when we finally got the picture of what he was talking about, would we turn against him violently? As we reflect on this question, I would like for us to do something that we have not often practiced here at Grace, to enter into a time of corporate 
repentance, tying together the messages from last week and today. In this way, we symbolically join the masses of God's people who were flocking to John and receiving his baptism of repentance for release from sins. And we also join Jesus' hometown synagogue when he revealed himself to them as the prophet and Messiah predicted by John. See, this is one of the wonderful things about reading is you can go places that you can't actually go in real life. And when you read the pages of scripture, you can enter in and try on different perspectives and think about how people are thinking. We can be there with John. We can be there with Jesus. I will lead us into a time of short prayer, and then we will have a few minutes to continue to reflect, pray, and embrace the attitude of repentance in silence together, turning from sin and turning toward Jesus. Then Alex will lead us with humble hearts up toward the sweet fellowship of communion with God and one another. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, we know that we are unclean, that our hearts habitually gravitate away from you and toward lesser things. Yet, as we continue in our desire to know and follow you, we confess our sins and accept the release that you offer. Also forgive us for the ways in which we have constructed you in our own image, instead of relying on the true testimony which you have revealed to us in your written word. Help us to understand our own misperceptions and misunderstandings, and give us new sight to see who you are and what you desire to do in and through us.